Well, um, I love the project um, Humans of New York. I don't know if you know that project online. A guy called Brandon Stanton since 2010 has been uh, walking around New York taking photos of people. And over time, the project's evolved. He's actually just been in India. He's travelled all over the world. And now, as well as taking people's photos, he asks them for their story. And that's actually the wonderful thing, I think, about the Humans of New York project. Because when you look at the photo, what you see is a person who's very removed from you. They live in another part of the world, and they may look actually very different to you, culturally. Um, but when you read their story, you find a connection. These common threads of humanity, the sort of hopes and dreams that we all share, the failures, the experiences of hopelessness, the difficulties in relationships, they're all common. And I think John's Gospel is a little bit like the Humans of New York Project because it's 2,000 years ago that this is, uh, these stories are written and we have here today a kind of snapshot of Jesus and this Samaritan woman who looks very different from us, a very different time and culture. And yet I hope as we get into this story that we will see uh, the connections that we have with it and with Jesus himself. And it works on two levels, and I'm just going to let you know that we're working on two levels. First of all, we're going to look at how Jesus speaks to this woman. And as we do that, and in fact, whenever you come and you see Jesus speaking with someone in the Gospels, I hope that you'll try and see that this is how Jesus wants to speak to you. We're going to think about that. How do we see this as a picture of ourselves relating to Jesus? But also there's something big going on. There's something really big that's going on in this passage, which has kind of global significance. So we'll come to that at the end as well. But let's get into it. Um, at the beginning of John chapter 4, and Peter flagged this last week actually in his sermon, that Jesus and his disciples are going to Galilee. They've been in Judea, the kind of the hub of um, Jewish religion and um, and the heat is on. People are hearing that Jesus is becoming very popular. People are being baptised and starting to follow him. And the Pharisees are not happy about this. And Jesus doesn't want conflict at this stage. It's very early. He knows it's going to come, but he's getting away from it. He's avoiding the conflict at this stage. And he decides to go back to Galilee. And to get there, he needs to go through the territories of Samaria. That's the fastest way to get to Galilee. And uh, we find in this snapshot that we get to uh, the middle of, the, of a day. They're at this significant landmark, Jacob's Well, and Jesus is tired and they stop to rest. And the other, rest of the disciples go off to find food because they're all hungry and Jesus is left alone. And while they're away, a local woman comes to the well to collect water. Now, kids... Water is very important. I reckon there's a kid here who can tell me just how important water is for human beings. Does anyone know how important it is? Can you live without water? Does anyone know? I can see a few heads shaking. I can see uh, Felix shaking his head. We need water. We have a lot of water in our bodies. We can't survive very long without it. And when we need water to drink, what do we do? What do you do when you need a drink of water? Eleanor, what do you do? Do you know? Alice, what do you do? We turn on the tap, don't we? And we get a drink in a cup, or we ask a grown-up to get us a drink. 
and we get a drink of water and it's very easy, but not for these people. And in fact, still today, in many parts of the world, people don't have plumbing and running water. We're very, very fortunate to have water so accessible. And what would happen in this place and time is that women would go to the wells out of the town and collect water for the household each day. How much water do you think you would need to collect for your household? For you to have enough to drink and everyone in your house? To What else do we need to do with water? We need to cook with it, don't we? We need to wash ourselves, hopefully you're washing yourselves with water, and uh, to wash our clothes and our plates and so on. We need water to do all those things. Water is very important. And the women would come usually together in the cooler part of the day because water is heavy. These women are strong women, aren't they? They're going to carry water for their whole household every day. They come in the cooler part of the day so that it's not so hard. But this woman comes in the hot part of the day and she's on her own. Now, we don't know why she's doing this. It doesn't actually tell us. Some people guess that this woman wants to be alone. That maybe actually some people in her town are not very friendly to her because her life is a bit of a mess, as we see later. But it doesn't tell us that, and we know that when she goes back to the town, she's able to talk to people, and they listen to her, and they come with her to see Jesus. So she may be somewhat marginalised, but she's not an outcast, is she? Maybe she prefers to be alone, and she doesn't want to make small talk. We don't actually know, but we know she comes alone this day when Jesus is there. And Jesus is tired, he's hungry, and he's thirsty, and he asks her for a drink. And this woman challenges him, doesn't she? So we are in verse 9, if you're following in the passage. She says to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John says, Because Jews do not associate with Samaritans, which is quite right. Jews and Samaritans were like, uh, well, they weren't friends. And in fact, they were like brothers and sisters who'd been fighting for so long that they can't remember how to get on with each other. You may have experienced that. Uh, that the fights go on and on, and it's the pattern to fight. Jews and Samaritans fought like brothers and sisters. And it had been going on for such a long time. And I say brothers and sisters because they both come from the same family tree. Abraham is their common ancestor. They started off together. But centuries ago, they had split. And over the centuries, they'd become further and further apart. And Jews looked at Samaritans as kind of impure or unclean because they had married into other nations. And so many Jews would not even drink from a Samaritan cup. And this woman knows that. And by the way, Samaritans didn't think very highly of Jews either. They thought that they were too influenced by other religions, Babylonian religions. They both thought each other were wrong, wrong, wrong about how and where to worship God. So this woman, she doesn't just give Jesus a drink because she's a Samaritan woman. She challenges him. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman and you want a drink from me? Well, Jesus doesn't tell her that she's wrong, does she? He doesn't challenge her back. But he does say something very interesting. What he says to her is, you know, you don't know who I am. But if you did, you might see this very differently. 
In fact, you would have asked me for a drink. If you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink because in verse 10, I would have given you living water. This is very clever of Jesus. He's using the topic of conversation out about water to invite her to talk about spiritual things and to offer her something. Now, Jesus does this a lot. And the image of water, living water, is actually an image that's used throughout the Bible to talk about God. Living water is water that comes out of a spring that you don't have to dig for in the, in the ground. It comes from a source like a stream or a river and it keeps flowing. And God is talked about uh, uh, in the Bible as living water because, as we've talked about, water is essential for life. And God is the life giver and the life sustainer. So it's a really good image for God. In fact, in Jeremiah, God says sadly to the people, you know, you've done two things wrong. The first thing is you've rejected me, the spring of living water, and you've dug wells in the ground that leak. You're thirsty and you won't come and drink from me. In fact, what you're doing, it's like drinking out of a cup with a hole in the bottom. Can you imagine doing that? drinking out of a cup with a hole in the bottom, very frustrating and constantly thirsty. The Israelites in the Old Testament were trying to find their spiritual satisfaction and their life in other places. And so this is a common picture of God, that he's a spring of living water. But the woman doesn't understand him, does she? If you keep going through that passage, we won't go through all of it in detail, it's very long, you'll notice that Jesus keeps trying to highlight. I'm not talking about this water, but she keeps challenging. You don't even have anything to get the water out. How can you give me water? You're all talk, she thinks. You know, you've got these big ideas, but prove it to me. I can't tell that you're telling me anything, that you can offer me anything. Finally, he says to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus is offering her true life and eternal life at that. But she doesn't understand. And that's not unusual. It's not that she's not particularly understanding um, in herself. You know, in a few verses later, we'll see that the disciples don't understand when Jesus says, I have food that you know nothing about. They start looking around. Where's this food. Has someone been here giving Jesus food? He's talking about the work that God has for them to do as being food. This is Jesus' way of talking, to take the things in front of him, the physical realities, and to speak um, in a spiritual way to try and help people understand what he has to reveal to them about God. Since the woman doesn't understand, Jesus decides to take the conversation somewhere else. He decides to stop talking about himself, but to talk about her. And this is in verse 16. He says to her, go and call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Well, now the woman's eyes are open a bit, aren't they? 
This is very specific information that Jesus has about her. She's never met him before. He's certainly not from her town. He wouldn't know her family. She recognises, okay, actually, this is somebody special. And there are a lot of thoughts and ideas about why Jesus brings her history up with her. And um, we could make a lot of guesses about this. But we can only make guesses from what we have in the passage and from what we know about the time and place that this woman was living. So keep in mind that in this culture, it was really important for women to be married. They had very few means of setting up an independent life. They were living under the protection of usually a father and then of a husband. Uh, So women were often married very young and to older men. And so it was um, very possible that a woman would be widowed, um, maybe once, her husband might die, and even more than once, because once she'd been widowed, she would be married again, usually to a brother or someone else in the husband's family, so she could keep being under the protection of that household. But five times widowed seems a lot, doesn't it? We don't know. We don't know the story. We don't know more. But divorce was also common in this culture too. It was very easy for men to divorce women if they were dissatisfied with their wives. It was not very easy for women to divorce men. Certainly, um, it would be possible for a woman to leave a man if she was um, being um, hurt or not looked after in her husband's household. That would be a wise thing to do. Um, and she might find protection somewhere else. Or, uh, of course, women may leave their husbands and go off with another man. That's also not impossible in this culture. We don't know. It's, that would be a risky thing, very risky thing to do in this particular culture. We don't know why, the whys of this. What we know is that Jesus knows about her and knows her story. Now, the fact that this woman's been through five marriages and now lives with a man who isn't her husband suggests that she has experienced a lot of disruption and pain in her life. Is she a victim? Is she somehow culpable? Well, we just don't know. And neither she or Jesus actually seems interested in talking about it. But what I want to say, and why I'm talking about this, is that I want to say I don't imagine that Jesus is bringing this up as a way of telling this woman that she's a terrible sinner. And I don't see that she takes it that way. In fact, when Jesus brings this up with her, things turn for the better. I think he tells her this so that she might have more insight into who he is and to trust him more. Because what is he saying when he brings this up? He's saying to her, I know your story. I know who you are. I know the brokenness. I know the disappointment. And I want to offer you something that is truly life-giving. And I want to ask you, when you come to Jesus, is this what you hear him say? Because we can't see Jesus, can we? He's not here with us now. And sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus is the one who accuses us. 
or we can't even look Jesus in the face because our life is not together yet. There's something um, that there's some sin we're um, struggling with, um, or we're angry about something, and we think if we look at Jesus, He's going to condemn us, or say, "I told you so," or "Yep, you're doing that again," or whatever it is. But the picture we have here of Jesus is someone who says, "Look at me. Look me in the eye. I know who you are. I know your story." I accept you, and I want to give you something life-giving. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I find I have to sit every day with Jesus and let him remind me of this. And when you go to the Gospels and you read stories like this, and I encourage you to go back to this story and other stories in John, look at how Jesus talks to people and how he invites them and how he embraces them just as they are. You can't change the past, but you can take something good from Jesus now and start to trust him. So I want to encourage you to do that today, especially if you're putting off following Jesus because you're waiting to get your life together. Don't put it off. The best time to do it is when you know that there's problems. Jesus is offering you something life-giving. And the woman understands that. And she's actually quite interested now, isn't she? But there's one hurdle, and she's got a great theological question. I like this woman a lot. She's got a theological question for Jesus. She says to him in verse 19, I can see that you are a prophet. You have special insight. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain where we're standing now. But you Jews say the place we have to worship is in Jerusalem. See? She wants it, but this disagreement still stands between them. We have the same God, but how and where are we to worship him? How can I take what you, a Jew, is offering me? Will I have to come and be like you? That's impossible for this woman, isn't it? And Jesus says to her, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, not on this mountain or in Jerusalem, Yes, he says salvation comes from the Jews. He's talking about himself. I have come to save you. Remember at the end of the passage, the Samaritans say, we can see you are the saviour of the world. Comes from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. But a time is coming and has now come, goosebumps, right now, as I talk to you, this woman. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is saying something massive here, that the arguments between Jews and Samaritans are coming to an end. There is no right place to worship God. God is spirit. God made the whole universe. He's not confined to a mountain or a temple. Those are special places for Jews and Samaritans. God was revealed to them there in those places. But Jesus is saying, now it's me. If you want to know God, come and know me, Jesus says. And then you are free to worship me wherever and whenever, which is excellent news for us, isn't it? 2,000 years later, in a primary school in Clifton Hill. We don't have to be in a special building. We don't have to see Jesus face to face because by his spirit, 
He's not contained by places or time. He's right here with us now by his spirit and we can worship him in spirit and truth just as we are. Excellent news. And the woman um, has one more question. She's just going to be sure. I know, she says, that a time is coming when the Messiah, the promised one of God, is coming and he will make everything clear for us. And Jesus, he knows. She wants confirmation. He says, yes, it's me. And she's off. She drops the jug. She's coming back, I take it. She runs to the village. She says, come and see. Come and see this man who's told me everything. Everything about me. More than that, though. Everything that we need to know. Could he be the Messiah? And so they go with her. And they persuade him to stay. Jesus, a Jewish teacher, in a Samaritan town for two days. And he explains the good news to them. And many of them become true worshippers. It's an incredible story. And John, when he... Remember John, who writes this, is one of the disciples who's gone to get food. And he wants us to know when they come back, they're very surprised to see Jesus talking to this woman. I think he puts that in there. They don't challenge him, but he wants us to know this is very surprising. So surprising, they don't even know what to say or ask him. I'm not going to talk through that next passage where he talks to them, except to say that what Jesus says to them about food and harvesting is, be ready and watch, because in a minute you're going to start harvesting, collecting fruit from the tree or from the field, whatever it is, that's the image he's using. You are going to see people coming to worship the true and living God, people you never expected and you've done no work. (laughs) You're just going to get the fun times now. Come and enjoy Let's go and do this thing. And so they go with him and they stay in Samaria and they see this happening. Well, I think we still see this kind of dynamic playing out in the world today. It is, don't, I hope we don't lose the sense of how weird it is that most of us who are Gentile, some of us may have um, Jewish heritage, but most of us don't. We are actually even further out than the Samaritans. We are the Gentile nations, as the Bible would call us. How extraordinary it is that we are here today together. Worship, thinking about Jesus, listening to his words, praying, worshipping the true and living God. But uh, I think we're getting used to the middle class Western church being the kind of Christian religion. We can sometimes think that that's what Christianity is in our time um, in history. But it's not. And so I encourage you today. It's great that Elle got up and talked about CMS Conference. It is a great place to go and hear about brothers and sisters around the world. I encourage you to keep looking and to hear stories about refugees in refugee camps, even places like Manus, hearing the word of Jesus and letting go of old confining religious practices and becoming Christians. Because the message that Jesus brings is so liberating, isn't it? Freedom to worship anywhere. Freedom to be accepted by God as you are. It's why I love the fact that at Mary Creek we are committed to listening to our Indigenous Australian brothers and sisters and their stories of how meeting Jesus has changed their lives and how they worship him in their unique culture. So we must keep listening to those stories and recognising that we belong to a very diverse 
heart, but unified church. Uh, so it's my hope. It's the beginning of the year, and I know we have all kinds of resolutions, things that we'd like to do personally, things we'd like to see happening in our church. Most of those resolutions we keep, not for very long, because they're impossible. They're about us being good, about having ourselves all together, doing the right things, being the cool church, whatever it is. No, let's, uh, let's be like this Samaritan woman. You can look Jesus in the eye and receive this gift of living water from him. You can run and go and say, come and see. That's all we have to do, say, come and see this Jesus and receive life from him. Let me pray for us. We praise you, true and living God. We thank you that your spirit is with us and that we can worship you now. We can speak to you in confidence that you love us, that you know our stories and that you call us to be your people. Help us to accept one another as you accept us. Help us not to write other people off, but to extend that invitation to come and see. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We are so immensely grateful. And we pray in your name. Amen.